Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. The Global South Economic Bloc, BRICS, that's led by Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, is expanding in a major development that's shaking power centers in the West. At the recent BRICS summit in Johannesburg, the bloc officially invited Argentina, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. These countries will become full members as of January 1st, 2024. This new BRICS 11 contains 46% of the world's population, 37% of global GDP, 40% of global oil production, and a third of global gas production, making it a force to be reckoned with should it decide to challenge the petrodollar system. While Washington cringes at the prospect of losing its global economic hegemony, BRICS has asked its finance ministers and central banks to initiate studies on alternatives to the U.S. dollar. How much of a challenge to Western hegemony does BRICS actually pose? How much of this has been brought on by the West's own hubris? What should we make of the ideological differences among the BRICS countries? Could India and Saudi Arabia act as spoilers? Or are we witnessing the symptomatic decline of American hegemony, with U.S. allies turning towards Washington's rivals? What does this mean for the rise of China? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Prabhat Petnayak, Marxist economist, professor emeritus at JNU, and author of many books, including A Theory of Imperialism and the more recent Capital and Imperialism, Theory, History, and the Present, both co-authored with Utsa Petnayak. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. Prabhat, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so much has uh, happened once again since we last spoke. Um, this is, of course, I'm speaking of the expansion of BRICS, uh, which many of us expected to happen, though this seemed quite significant. And just again, to, to like remind people, now there's six countries that have been added to BRICS. We're talking about Egypt, uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, uh, Argentina, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and, uh, and, Iran. and Iran, excuse the one of the most important ones, Iran. And this, I mean, these, these countries being added now, they're calling it the BRICS 11. This would mean you have a significant portion of the world's, I mean, global oil production, as well as gas production now in this group, uh, which makes it, I think, a force to be reckoned with. Um, so I guess let's start with this. Prabhat, how significant is this expansion? You know, the first thing is that they have taken six new members, but apparently 22 had applied to join uh, or had shown an interest. In fact, the South African government says that there are 40 countries which are currently expressing an interest in joining BRICS. So the question is that why should suddenly so many countries uh, want to join BRICS? I mean, I think that's, that's quite important. I think the main reason is that the existing uh, institutions which 
imperialist countries have set up are now quite incapable of catering to the demands of the various countries in the context of the current crisis, current economic crisis, which even many conservative and establishment economists are calling uh, a, a secular stagnation. Now, oil and gas producing countries face a reduction in their prices because of the world recession. And when they do that, then obviously you have a, a, a problem, namely that, you know, uh, they have to reduce output to maintain their prices. And the U.S. as, as a predominantly consuming country is really not interested in their reducing output. In fact, last time when OPEC Plus wanted to reduce output, the U.S. sent several emissaries to Saudi Arabia, including Biden himself to ask, uh, you know, the Saudi government not to go ahead with the rest of the OPEC plus in reducing output, but they did. So, so I think the interests of the oil and gas producers are different from what the United States would like. Then similarly, you find that among these are countries against whom there are sanctions. I mean, Russia, is a country against which there is sanction. Iran is a country against which there is sanction. And similarly, against China, even though there are no official sanctions, there are all kinds of prohibitions, uh, protection against Chinese goods and so on in the West. So these are countries which are being, as it were, explicitly targeted by the advanced countries, the, the imperialist countries. And because of that, they have a certain interest in kind of, you know, finding a, a, a larger arrangement uh, through which they can beat these kinds of discrimination. Then you have a lot of countries like, for instance, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, all of which are caught in a very serious crisis. Uh, Egypt is caught in a crisis. Argentina is caught in a very serious crisis to an extent that they're about to elect an extreme right-wing government, uh, which is, you know, because the people are so fed up of the neoliberal policies adopted by the preceding liberal governments that they're even willing to turn right. Now, as far as these countries are concerned, and India and Brazil to a lesser extent, they are interested in expanding their relations beyond simply the dollar zones. In other words, they are interested in what they call de-dollarization. And I think that's a major attraction for most other applicant countries as well. If you can have trade in local currencies, in that case, you are bypassing the need to have dollars. And this, of course, is something that many of them would like. Right. And, you know, I think it's uh, you mentioned so many things that I'd like to like get into more details about. Um, but I think something that has come up quite a bit in some of the sort of conversations around this expansion is while a lot of speeches have been given by various leaders that sort of like harken back to the non-aligned movement, right? Like you hear um, a lot of the leaders of various countries who've joined BRICS or want to join BRICS uh, saying things that, you know, are talking about like, you know, going against Western hegemony uh, and de-dollarization. But there is, of course, this ideological inconsistency in BRICS because not all these countries have the same ideology. Uh, and some of them are, you know, close with the U.S. I think one thing people were really surprised about 
was the addition of so many Middle Eastern countries, all of which are American allies. You have the United Arab Emirates, the Saudi, the Saudi, Saudi Arabia, you have Egypt. I mean, what's the significance of that? What's the significance of these countries that are so closely tied to the U.S.? Many of them actually, Egypt, for example, depends on the U.S. for billions of dollars a year to guarantee its security. I mean, Saudi Arabia also depends on the U.S. to so-called guarantee its security. Yet they're joining this uh, economic block that is led by America's rivals. What does that mean? You know, this talk about a new non-aligned movement, non-aligned countries movement, I don't quite agree with it because you see, non-alignment really referred to a situation where there were two very clear blocks. Now, I don't think China and Russia in that sense constitute a block. Mm. I mean, I think the Soviet Union in the old days did constitute a block because ideologically it was a fairly coherent entity and there was a Cold War on and the non-aligned countries want, were deliberately wanting to be anti-imperialist because most of them had been decolonized very recently. They had a very long and bitter experience of colonialism. But I don't think that is something which you find today because I think it is, it is the imperialist countries which are very aggressive vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. Uh, they, after all, are the ones who expanded NATO right up to the borders of Russia, and they are the ones which are targeting China at the moment. Uh, and I don't believe China has got any aggressive intentions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the advanced capitalist countries. They just want to cut China down to size because they say in it, see in it a potential threat. And the countries, as you rightly pointed out, which are a part or, or now a part of BRICS, wanting to be part of BRICS, are themselves not particularly countries which have had bitter experience of imperialism, or, or at least the current governments in those countries are not motivated by the bitter experience of imperialism. And you're perfectly right that Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and so on, are not really anti-imperialist countries. I think they're just diversifying their relations, mm -hmm. but I think this expansion of BRICS, seeing it as an anti-imperialist, imperialist move is an overstatement. Okay, fair. And that that being said, you know, there is a lot of talk of, oh, potential spoilers. And by that, I mean, you know, it was mentioned that India apparently vetoed Algeria's entry at the behest of the French, um, which is quite interesting. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, you also have the Saudis, which everybody is extremely suspicious of the Saudis. I, not everybody, I should say those who are anti-imperialist or leftist or want to see like the rise of alternatives to the U.S. dollar um, view the Saudis with extreme caution, uh, given that Saudi Arabia has historically and remains very, very close to the United States. So I guess my question is, what are the potentials for spoilers here? Well, you know, I, I see this not as an anti-imperialist move, but a move which is, as I said, a diversification away from American hegemony, which is necessitated by, by the world capitalist crisis. And this is something which, however, makes it easier for countries or for people to take anti-imperialist positions. In other words, in itself is not anti-imperialism, but it actually opens up possibilities in world politics. 
In other words, I mean, I think the inclusion of Iran is of great significance because mm. Iran has been in the firing line of imperialism much longer than any other country and really in a much more vicious way. So the point is that the inclusion of Iran is, is extremely important. And I think this really would weaken the impact of imperialist sanctions against in future those countries which are recalcitrant, which in fact might wish to break away from the hegemony of imperialism. So I think this opens up opportunities, but this in itself is not an anti-imperialist movement. Fair, fair. And then so I guess let's get to like why it matters. Then you mentioned some stuff about like de-dollarization. And then there's the idea of trading outside of the dollar. You have Brazil's Lula suggesting a different currency, an alternative currency that people that that people in this block trade in. Um, and then, of course, you have, you know, people talking about I know that Brazil has suggested to Argentina potentially trading in Chinese currency. Can you explain? I know we talked a bit about this the last time I had you on, but can you explain why just these little bits of potentially trading in something outside of the dollar between countries that aren't even, you know, trading with the United States, why this is so, um, why this is viewed as such a challenge to Western hegemony? You know, there are two separate issues here. The first issue is, of course, trade in local currency or trade in a common currency or whatever. You know, in other words, if you have the BRICS countries' currencies being linked to one another at a fixed exchange rate, in effect, you have got a new currency. Okay, so 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 you have uh, trade in local currency and Dilma Rousseff, who's the former Brazilian president, who's now heading the BRICS Bank, she has said that that trade in local currency is a first priority. So I think trade in local currency is going to be a major attraction of BRICS, and the advantage of that is that you know that that it. It enlarges the liquidity available in the world economy. If I wish to trade with you, then I don't need dollars to buy your goods. You don't need dollars to buy my goods. Now, these dollars could be purchased either if I could export to countries like like US or whatever, or alternatively, if I could borrow these dollars from Western banks, etc. Now, to the extent that you can have an expansion of liquidity for doing trade, which is not the dollar, but which is local currencies, and this expansion can occur through the central banks of these particular countries enlarging their money supply, in which case you really have control over the supply of liquidity in the world economy, which is in your hands, and that supply can increase at your will. And that ob obviously is something that would enlarge the possibilities of trade among these countries. That's a, that's, that's a major benefit. The fact that you can trade, India can now trade with Iran without necessarily having to earn dollars for doing that, is, is a major kind of, you know, breakthrough. It's, it's a major possibility. And then you have the idea, so that's the local currency but issue. The, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, but, 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 but at the same time, I believe there are some, some problems still remaining, and that is the following. That suppose it is the case 
that there is trade between India and Iran in, in some local currency or, or, or in both countries' currencies with a fixed exchange rate. But suppose India has a persistent surplus vis-a-vis Iran. Okay. In that case, Iran would require external aid. External Iran would run up an external debt against India. Therefore, the idea of overcoming the problem of external debt is not resolved by simply doing local currency trade. For that, you would require something more. And that something more would be if it is the case that India resolves its surplus vis-a-vis Iran by making it a point by to buy Iranian goods. Mm-hmm. So, so if the surplus is resolved by buying each other's commodities, rather than simply by building up claims against the other, then it would have been a major challenge to the existing institutions. Even as such, it is as it were half a major challenge to the existing institutions. And so then there's the issue of a new currency entirely. So you were just speaking of the issue of trading in local currency and the benefits, but potential challenges to that. But then when we hear about the idea of a new currency, I mean, this hasn't really been... um, detailed and in, in, in that like thought through as far as I know, but you've had it mentioned quite a few times. Um, what what would this mean if there was some new alternative currency outside of just the local currencies, but that also isn't the dollar? Um, is that even something that sounds plausible in the coming years? And if it were to happen, what would it mean for global South countries and then for the US dollar? You know, local currency is a good idea, though I would prefer, so, so, sorry, the a common currency is a good idea, though I would prefer local currency, because mm-hmm. if you have a common currency, then the supply of that common currency is still to be determined by some kind of a central bank and so on. It's not, it's not easily available to all the different countries if they need this, this common currency. For instance, now you have SDRs which the IMF uh, issues, but the SDR that the IMF issues really, their supplies are limited. And, and, and the point is that people buy the SDRs by using their own currency, but on the other hand, the supplies are limited. So if you have any common currency, then the problem of supply of the common currency still remains. And therefore, the expansion of liquidity in the world economy something which would still be relatively limited. But on the other hand, pure local currency trade, in which basically countries uh, uh, kind of, you know, have their own currencies or, you know, own own money supply, and with that, they purchase each other's goods. I think that is a better idea to my mind. Okay. And then... Because then there's no limitations on the supply of liquidity. Well, then I wanted to ask you about the new development bank or the BRICS development bank, as, as it's been referred to, which is this the BRIC blocks like alternative, as it's been it's been described as an alternative to the U.S. dominated World Bank. Um, and they are de-dollarizing their loans. Um, they also do promote local currencies in keeping with what everything we've talked about. So I'm just curious, you know, do you, do you see a significance in this new development bank? Well, the, the the development bank, you see, the development bank is going to do one thing, but not another. 
The thing it is going to do is to give infrastructure loans. You know, the, the BRICS bank, again, Dilma Rousseff has made it very clear that they're going to give infrastructure loans, which is good because then you are less dependent on other sources of financing. And presumably the terms on which the loans are given would be much easier and so on. So that's, that's a positive thing. But on the other hand, they have also made it clear that they are not going to provide loans for financing either debt servicing or debt retirement. So that, you know, countries which are indebted cannot really turn to uh, the BRICS bank for any kind of assistance. Mind you, the expansion of BRICS is not really taking in the most uh, the world's most indebted countries. But even other third world countries, which would have come to the BRICS Bank for loans uh, that they're currently desperately looking for, for instance, in India's own neighborhood, Sri Lanka has just gone uh, to the IMF for a loan and so on. And, and along with these loans, you have austerity, uh, which is imposed on the country, which means extreme hardship to the people, which means greater unemployment and so on. Now, those are areas in which the BRICS bank is not going to enter. So the loans it is going to give, it is something which is helpful, certainly something which breaks the monopoly of the existing lending institutions, but on the other hand, would not really provide the kind of assistance to third world countries that might really make them come out of the grip of the IMF. Well, all of, so all of these, it sounds like a lot of these new mechanisms or new things that are being suggested have so much potential, but it's not like a guarantee um, that anything really like shifts just because, just because this new block has formed and added new countries. So it sounds like there's a lot yes. to be done. Um, yes. I, and, I, but yeah, go ahead. If there's anything you want to add to that. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with that. You see, I don't think one needs to get too excited about BRICS, but I think it is, as it were, a, a break with the existing pattern, which is to be welcomed. And it is something which, as I said, increases the option before countries. It reduces the monopoly control of a few advanced countries uh, on the entire international financial architecture. But on the other hand, it's not something that we have to get very excited about that this is really, uh, you know, the end of imperialism or it's a kind of blow <laughs> against imperialism and things of that kind. I, I, I don't think one should get too excited, but I think it's a welcome development. <laughs> Well, so um, that's it's looking at it with a level of, you know, cautious optimism. Um, right. But then, you know, you mentioned the issue of sanctions. I'd like to delve into that a little bit deeper because, with you know, Russia was already a part of BRICS, obviously, one of the founding members. Um, and Russia is under some of the most extreme sanctions in the world at the moment. But now with the addition of Iran, um, now you have two major, like with two of the most sanctioned countries in the world. Uh, being a part of this economic block. I mean, what's the significance of that in terms of, you know, the ability of other sanctioned countries to use this as an avenue to maybe sidestep the most destructive impact of sanctions? In a sense, I would say that is a far more serious and immediate contribution 
of BRICS and the expansion of BRICS. Namely, that, you know, even though they may not be anti-imperialist, but at least they give some kind of a sanctuary to sanctioned countries. Uh, you know, in fact, Russia's own trade with a lot of these countries uh, now bypasses the Western sanctions. As a matter of fact, ironically, India imports a lot of natural gas and exports it to Western Europe, which is actually sanctioning Russia. Same Russian natural gas is imported by some Indian firms and sold in the Western European market. So that, you know, uh, I think to the extent that BRICS breaks the possibility of sanctions biting the sanctioned countries, that they now have, have the possibility of trade with a lot of these countries, which which would then be avoiding uh, the kind of American-dominated sanctions. I think that has great possibility. I, I, I think that is really the most immediate uh, and telling consequence of uh, the expansion of BRICS. Prabhat, I also thought, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Western reaction to all of this, because there was so much hand-wringing when this announcement came through. Um, there was two things. On the one hand, there was this very, like, whiny attitude of, like, oh, no, all of these brown countries in the global south are trying to take over the world, and they're trying to unseat um, the West as, like, you know, the dominant power. Uh, and then so there was that attitude. And then on the other hand, there was this sort of opposite attitude of underplaying the significance of this. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just a bunch of poor, underdeveloped countries uh, who can't really do anything. We're still in charge. So these are the two attitudes I saw among analysts and think tankers and just like media personalities. And then one thing in particular, though, that I saw that kind of brought all of them together was this notion that the G7 countries are, you know, they're liberal and they're they're democratic and they represent human rights and, you know, all that, all that jargon. Whereas these BRICS countries are an alliance of authoritarianism and an alliance of backwardsness on some level and just a bunch of countries that hate human rights um, and aren't able to respect them. And that they're specifically anti-democratic. Like there was this framing of the G7 being democracies and then BRICS being authoritarian and, and, and anti-democratic. And I'm just curious what your response is to that framing, given when we look at like how much of the world the G7 represents and who is in charge of it and how they behave around the world versus these BRICS countries. You know... Marx had once said, a country that oppresses another cannot be free. Now, these are countries, the so-called liberal democracies, these are the countries which have oppressed the entire world for hundreds of years. So I do not take their claims to being free very seriously, because, you know, <laughs> quoting Marx, a country that oppresses another cannot be free. Uh, but, uh, but, but the point, and, and additionally, what I'd like to say is that, you know, that at the moment, there is a tendency towards fascism all over the world, including in the advanced countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, Italy, has got Meloni as, as its prime minister. France is likely 
to uh, possibly to 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 get Marine Le Pen. And what is more most disturbing is that Germany moving towards a situation where the uh, kind of less right wing parties are going to form coalitions with the far right AFD. So everywhere there is an upsurge of right wing politics and established political parties are willing to play ball uh, with these right-wing parties. And therefore, this whole talk about there being bastions of free speech and, and democracy and so on is something which, uh, even if one assumes that it exists at the moment, uh, in order to last necessarily very long. But what is more, even its existence at the moment is very doubtful because look at the way that the entire American media has really lined up on the Ukraine issue behind uh, the American government. Now, the point is, no matter what you think about Putin, but the fact of the matter is that expansion of NATO to the frontiers of Russia is a violation of the promise which was made by the German and American governments to Gorbachev. And the, and, 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 and the point is that this is really a neocon-driven strategy to needle Russia and to reduce it to a subservient status. So the point, and, and, and note, the American press does not give any publicity to it. Similarly, the bursting of the Nord Stream pipeline, the American press, uh, the dominant American press, including liberal press like New York Times and so on, really did not uh, give it any kind of publicity. So, so this business of Western liberalism or, or free, free speech and the free press and so on is something which Anyway, I take with a pinch of salt, and you must not forget I come from an ex-colonial country, one and a half centuries of colonialism. So I don't, I'm not very impressed with it. It's not also likely to last very long because of this emergence of fascism, unless, and, and, unless there is a kind of liberal solution to the crisis that can be thought of, which is not on the horizon at the moment. So all this is in a state of flux. And I, I'm, I appreciate that you brought up uh, Ukraine because I wondered, you know, how much how much did the war in Ukraine impact the expansion and increasing importance of an economic bloc like BRICS and even other alternatives uh, to these Western led institutions? Uh, and the reason I raise that is because just take Egypt, for example. Um, one thing that was repeatedly noted as Egypt uh, joined BRICS or was invited to join BRICS is that Egypt's economy suffered dramatically as a result of uh, the war in Ukraine. It's um, because of the issue with wheat uh, and fertilizer and Egypt's ability to import or export and its currency devalued dramatically as a result. Um, and they're really in need uh, of hard currency or the idea of maybe being able to trade and their own local currency because of their dollar shortage. And that's just one among so many countries that's experienced a shortage of dollars in the global South, uh, you know, as a result of the war in Ukraine, but of course other factors as well. But just to go back what I originally asked, you know, what is what is the significance of the war in Ukraine and leading to um, the emerging significance of blocks or, or collections of, of countries like BRICS? You know, the, the war in Ukraine, if you like, is is really the last 
straw on the camel's back in the, in, in the sense that, you know, that, that it is both expressive of the crisis which the imperialist countries are facing and, and, and the world order dominated by them. Uh, and at the same time, it is something which is going to aggravate that crisis because, you see, uh, the war in Ukraine has really given rise to, as you say quite rightly, to uh, many countries looking for alternative arrangements. And, and I think that's a major factor behind 40 countries applying or being interested in, in, in joining BRICS, which is really quite amazing. Uh, and at the same time, uh, to the extent that things like BRICS come up, and the war in Ukraine drags on, it is going to weaken the imperialist countries to an even greater extent. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.